Welcome to the Pair Program from Hatchpad, the podcast that gives you a front row seat to candid conversations with tech leaders from the startup world. I'm your host, Tim Winkler, the creator of Hatchpad. And I'm your other host, Mike Ruin. Join us each episode as we bring together two guests to dissect topics at the intersection of technology, startups, and career growth. Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of The Pair Program, the show that brings together two technologists from the startup world to tackle topics at the intersection of technology and career growth. I'm your host, Tim Winkler, and my co-host, Mike Gruen. Let's get into it. Frankie, Josh, what's going on? Good to see you again. Good to see you. Thanks for having us. Of course. I'm excited. All right. As you uh, both know, this is The Pair Program. We love two of everything here, so... Let's kick things off with a uh, fun segment that we call Pair Me Up, where each guest contributes a unique pairing. I'll go ahead and begin. Um, Always been a um, big fan of game shows. Uh, So I'm going to go with game show host and Alex Trebek, the GOAT. I thought long and hard about this because Bob Barker played a a, a serious role uh, in my life, you know, (laughs) staying home from school on a sick day, uh, watching Price is Right. But um, I think you got to go Alex Trebek. Um, You know, they're they're running through these rotations right now to figure out who the next host is going to be. But just hard to hard to top that, in my opinion. I mean, the the level of that, that sweet spot of like arrogance that he brings to the you know, like that he brought, I think was an important aspect of Jeopardy. I think that's going to be yeah. tough to, I mean, and, and I'm not saying that in a negative way. I think he, it, it was definitely part of the persona that came through that I thought was good. Like when he was answering the question, like when people didn't get the question, right. I, he's definitely going to be tough to, to replace. And then the SNL parodies, like we could go on. But, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, Mike, what do you got? So uh, I'm going with uh, chainsaws and overconfidence. Um, so <laughs> little, little backstory there. Um, so growing up, uh, I grew up in upstate New York, a lot of wood. We actually had this big wood burning stove, heated the whole house. So, uh, cutting wood with my dad was like something we spent a lot of time. Uh, I have a chainsaw, like to use it. My neighbor, uh, recently had a tree that he wants to get rid of. Um, asked for my help, uh, assured me he knew what he was doing. Uh, and, uh, I was like, really? And he started getting out ropes and, and other things. Cause he was going to try and top the tree and bring it down like piece by piece. And I was like, if you, you, if you know what you're doing, that's great. Um, and, uh, he assured me he did, he'd worked with in landscaping in the past, blah, blah, blah. Needless to say, it did not go smoothly. Nobody was seriously injured, including myself, <laughs> but it, you know, the lesson I remember <laughs> growing up, I was talking to my dad about this was, um, like as soon as you're bringing out ropes, chances are you want to actually use your wallet. Like, just go ahead and get a professional to take care of it. <laughs> so that's my that's my pair. Chainsaws and overconfidence. Yeah. <laughs> Funny. <laughs> Good. Uh, Josh, why don't, you, uh, why don't you go next? Okay. Um, I think artists and entrepreneurs. Um, I think the cool. two of those have a, a lot in common. Um, and the more you, uh, like, explore artistic endeavors, whether it's writing or painting or poetry or whatever, you start to realize that the the bravery and the vulnerability that comes with uh, those artistic expressions is also pretty similar to what uh, you know entrepreneurs uh, have to exhibit to bring their things into uh, that as well. So um, that's something that I've kind of enjoyed uh, studying those two things kind of in parallel and seeing the commonalities between both. That's really interesting. I am um, favorite artist. 
No, not necessarily. I mean, I've, I, I enjoy writing uh, and I enjoy like, uh, you know, some of the great novelists, so Ernest Hemingway and some of those just enjoy the craft of, of writing. And the more I've studied about that, the more, you know, you just you see these parallels. Uh, there's a great book called um, Art Fear uh, that talks about just the, the difficulty of putting something new into the world. Uh, a lot of the psychology that happens. Um, and so kind of reading that uh, as a hobby, um, but living in the world of startups and, and entrepreneurship. Um, it's just, it's cool to see the, the overlap between both. Cool. Mike, did you have, you, well, you, no, you I was just going to say, I think that there's a similar, I, I've, um, the creativity and, and sort of artistic musician, that type of stuff. I've also seen a lot of correlation between that and engineering yeah. and product as well. Yeah. Um, and I was just curious if, if you've also seen that have similar experience. Yeah, and the, and the line between like brilliance and uh, just plain crazy is is obviously <laughs> a very it's it's a very narrow line, right? And so a lot of people are misunderstood for a long time, right? Uh, some never fully you know make the the mark uh, like they hope to, uh, but others do. You know, they see a future that people never saw and were crazy enough to pursue it, and eventually the world caught up to them. Um, and so it's it's kind of see it's a parallel journey, really. Yeah, absolutely. Frankie, what, uh, what do you have for a pairing? Yeah, so my pairing is things that make us emotional for absolutely no valid reason. <laughs> and those two things are men's professional sports and the Bachelor Nation franchise. <laughs> <laughs> they both have a huge amount of viewership and people that are in a bad mood the next day, depending on the outcome. Really, the only difference between these two things, which both involve massive drinking parties while right. you watch the big events right is that you can't bet on the bachelor because it's recorded in advance and there's lots of websites where you can go up and look up you know the spoilers of the season because it's all happening in advance i swear that's the only reason people don't bet on the bachelor otherwise i think <laughs> those two things would be completely identical it's a very arbitrary <laughs> sense of rules everybody's got a role to play uh you're not ever really seeing anybody's true face in either of these things right it's still a job and uh they both just can make you irrationally upset because you're emotionally invested in these people on your TV. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, sports Rares. and bachelor nation. It's funny. Actually, I, I can specifically remember, you know, walking into the office on Mondays and, you know, being a Washington football team fan, just complete dumpster fire over here. Mondays folks are just pissed off, you know, during <laughs> football season. And, it, um, and then you get one win and you could just see like Steve's so chipper today, you know, which it's is, like, the, I, I remember reading a book about like sort of the psychology of people and blah, blah, blah. And, and one of the things I remember from the book was like, uh, when your team wins, it's your team. When they lose, it's they, they lost. <laughs> it's never, right. we lost. It's always, <laughs> they lose, we won. <laughs> right. Sort of that emotional tie. Nah, that's a good one. Yeah. Cool. All right, that was fun. Let's um let's segue out of this and into uh the meat of the discussion here. So I'll go ahead and jump into this. All right, on today's <laughs> episode, we're gonna be covering a topic that uh, we like to call stage fright. So this is an episode all about dissecting the unique growing pains, challenges, growth hacks that the startups experience, you know, going from seed stage to series A. Um, you know, given this is a pretty broad topic. We're going to keep this more narrowed into, you know, roles and how teams might change from C to A. Um, you know, Frankie, you'll be kind of the engineering perspective here. Josh, you're, you're our product perspective. Uh, Frankie, let's start with you just maybe first off for some context for the listeners. 
you know, how many, you know, seed stage startups have you been a part of and of those, you know, kind of graduated into um, a series A stage? Yeah. So great question. Uh, my last company that I was at was seed stage and we were actively raising series A um, to the day that this is recording. I don't think they've been able to do that. Sometimes you just don't have a product market fit. You try and experiment and it doesn't work. Um, I've worked at a couple other companies that were essentially seed stage while they had previous funding. They were either after a pivot or some sort of catastrophic problem that caused them to sort of start from the ground level again, because sometimes this also works like shoots and ladders. So they had a lot of the same seed stage problems while they might have advertised that they were seeking Series B. But if you don't have a product market fit, you're essentially at the same place as the seed stage mm-hmm. um, folks. You have a lot yeah. of the same the same issues. And Josh, you know, I've talked to you off and on. We've done a few interviews in the past. You know, this is your sweet spot, yeah. right? Um, maybe a little little context for the listeners on on your background. Yeah, so I've done um, one one pre seed, one seed stage that was similar to what what Frankie mentioned, where they actually had other funding, but you you kind of continue to remain in that that seed uh, strata. Uh, and then the other four VC back companies I've been a part of have I've been typically one of the first product people brought in, uh, and that's typically at the Series A. Uh, so you're right there at that transition from seed to to, to A, um, and so that's really where I've spent most of my career. Oh, well, let's dive into some of the some of those topics then. So, what are some of like the major differences that you see from let's start maybe with leadership roles um, in seed versus you know how those evolve in a and maybe a Series A back type of startup, Frankie. If maybe from from your perspective on engineering, there's actually several articles you could find on the internet about the five types of engineering leaders you need as your company scales from seed to to IPO because the job looks completely different. Um, the other way you might see this laid out is you know that that uh, article about handing over your Legos because your job actively changes. Your first engineering leader is probably actively writing code. They're doing a lot of things themselves. They don't have a lot of support, right? In some cases, it's been the case for me, sometimes I have needed to act as product management as well, um, either because we didn't have one or because there was too much product management work for the product management team that we had. There's a lot of reasons why that might happen. Um, and so you know that that job is actively going to shift and you have some choices as you grow about whether you want to hire somebody in over top of them or whether that person is able to build the skills necessary. Um, but your your seed stage engineering leaders are usually epic jack of all trades. They're writing code. They're doing performance management of the other engineers. They're working closely with product. Um, and they're also figuring out what's an acceptable amount of tech debt for that particular moment of time in the business. You wear a lot of hats. I think I've lost track of the original question. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, I'm curious what your thoughts are because I think... Um especially in the early days, right? The, that, that first engineer is doing so much. Um, a lot of times they're also trying to figure out what they want to do next in their career, right? This is sort of, this is their first or maybe second step into more of a leadership position. Maybe at the last place they were in IC, uh, senior dev, whatever. And now this is a, you know, this is their opportunity to do a little bit of management, a little bit of this, a little bit of business ownership. Um, I'm curious if, you know, what your thoughts are, because I think that's also a big part of it is them themselves figuring out what they want to do next. Absolutely. And I've been on two sides of this. One is convincing engineers that they should go work at early stage startups specifically for that kind of experience. The other thing is being that person myself. Um, 
a couple jobs ago, I got, I was hired in as a team lead and I, uh, they were right on the tail end of some very big change that happened and a bunch of people left. And then suddenly it was just me. And I was like, well, I guess you better give me the director title now, <laughs> uh, which they did, <laughs> you know, but you, it helps to have a goal in mind when you go work at a startup as a, as an early stage engineer is your goal just to acquire some specific uh, experience so that you could take that onto the next place. Or do you just want to go flex your muscles and see what you can do? Um, that will also help you in making the decision about how long you should stay there because the earlier the startup is and the more likely you are to experience significant change, the less need there is for you to actually be there for years and years and years, right? The engineers that you hire at the beginning who want to write the really scrappy code and just get the thing out the door are maybe not the same ones who are capable of fixing your tech debt problems that you have six months. Cause they're too busy later. making them. Yeah. <laughs> That's, yep. that's spot on. <laughs> yep, And they're not invested, right? If you're an early stage crappy startup engineer and that's what you enjoy, right? That sort of real life hackathon happening. By the time you have to start maintaining the code bases that you've stood up, maybe you don't care about that anymore. And I think that's a good journey to go. And I think it's a good question to ask yourself. And, and I think, you know, another thing, and I encourage people to do the same thing, which is go and try different roles, see what you like. You don't, you won't really know if it's a good fit or what you enjoy doing until you try it. And it may be the case, like in my career, um, I sort of was pushed into a little bit of a, a management role pretty early on. And I was like, I, I like the job, but I miss this other stuff. And so I went back and, and went back to engineering for a while, knowing that I enjoyed some of that management stuff and, and I can get back to that if I want to. And I think that's an important thing as well is that it get, there's flexibility in a startup where you can bounce back and forth between leadership, IC management, and there can be lots of, definitions of that yeah even at the same company you can do that yeah. yeah right because when they're ready to hire more people you can always pipe up and say i would like you to hire me a new boss <laughs> right, right. The right. i don't want to deal with this stuff i want to just right work on this other stuff right. the reverse make me the boss that's a little bit of a harder sell but you can always <laughs> say please yeah. hire me yeah. a boss <laughs> <laughs> josh what have you seen on on uh you know from the product side of the house yeah it's um it's interesting you know Typically, product comes in at the Series A stage. So product at the seed stage is generally the founders and this kind of engineering leader, quite honestly, and, and the early customers, right? Those are the voices that are typically shaping that first version of the product. And, um, and honestly, I think that works really well. You know, I don't, I don't, you know, I think there's some advantage to having product early. Um, but when you when you're a seed stage product person, you're wearing a lot of non-product hats. Like you're typically customer success, you're typically operations, you're typically uh, QA, you're typically, you know, and, and some product work. Um, so if you like that and you like, you know, that spread, then that can work really well. Um, but if you want to do true product stuff, that's really starts kicking in, at least in my experience around the, the Series A timeframe. Have you seen where like a product person maybe is one of the very first senior technology type hires and it's real and their 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 technical solution is we're going to outsource engineering or we're going to we're going to use this third party to to build the thing. We we think product is really important and and that's why we want to retain this information but the actual engineering aspect of it is maybe less. Have you have you seen that and what's your experience? You know, most of what I've seen has been actually, you know, having the engineers as a part of the core team. Um, typically, we're, we're at least in, with teams I've been a part of, 
the outsourcing starts when you're ramping and you're trying to grow quickly and you just can't hire enough local, you know, folks. And, and that's where you start to augment with, you know, uh, folks in, in Europe or Asia. Um, it's been at least what I've seen. How about you? Uh, me personally, I, I mean, I've definitely I know a couple consulting companies where that's what they do. They specialize mm. in working with founders who don't really know yeah. the the tech side. And then and so they actually are the that engineering and they bring a little bit of product. Mm. And then the first per, like one of the first hires has been a product person. It's an interesting yeah. it's an interesting journey. Um, yeah, I think that one of the things, especially engineering and um, um, frankly, I'm curious your your thoughts on this, but I think early on, whatever you build, you're just plan to replatform. Like whatever you oh, yeah. do is probably going to be wrong and you need to yeah. be ready to move on. And I think some of those founders that start with this like outsourced engineering idea, like sort of have that as like a, well, we know like we're going to, yeah. we're going to have to move off of this. In fact, actually one of the companies I forgot where I was the first engineer hired, they'd actually, they had outsourced a lot of the yeah. initial build to these other mm-hmm. companies to build that foundation and sort of, prove out the the idea um that founder had a lot more money to sort of self-stake it yeah. so <laughs> yeah i think yeah. that's actually a good point it especially for those like first that, that really like that first build you know I, I have seen that but a lot of times sometimes those folks just get like absorbed into that core team you know oh, we try because uh, they have so much <laughs> yeah if, if you can you know and then eventually they kind of get get bored and, and decide to move to to their next challenge but mm-hmm. yeah um yeah, I think you're you're spot on that that's that's pretty common, at least in that like very zero to one stage. Yeah, Josh, actually, like um, those the the guys from Prodify, like uh, yeah. Ben and Rajesh. Yeah. So I talked to them quite a bit about this because they do, you know, they help with a lot of like early stage hiring for for your first product hire. Yeah. Right. And the common theme that they come back with is like almost like put your blinders on to like title because you, mm-hmm. you don't you, you, you would think you, maybe you need this chief product officer, this head of product. Really, what you need is like a hands on like product manager, you know, yep. not really managing people, but somebody that's really like getting their hands dirty and getting into the thick of it. Yep. Um, you're going to save a ton of money and you're going to give somebody an opportunity that's hungry. And, and really, that's what you need in that in that seed phase or even like getting Mm -hmm. into that first product hire. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think you're, I think you're spot on. I mean, especially in the seed and then the series a, as long as that person can also help with hiring the first few product managers and provide leadership there, and then also help getting the like scaffolding for process and structure in place. um, Yeah. I think you can take a really, you know, um, you know, sharp IC or somebody that's had kind of that middle area to, to really fill that leadership role. Uh, in many ways, that's been my journey, to be honest, um, is kind of, you know, moving into that middle layer. And then at some point, you can bring in the kind of hyperscale, you know, person to build out a large org, um, you know, after that fact. So I, I think mm-hmm. that's spot on. Yeah, the outsourcing thing is a challenge. I, I've been engineering leadership at an early stage startup where we had folks in Europe. My team spanned from Europe to Thailand. And uh it had not been contextualized for anybody else that was there before me that mm-hmm. if you have a bunch of international contractors write your code base, especially if you have them do it in a tech stack they were previously unfamiliar with, Ooh. you were going to have to rewrite it. Um, and so one of the challenges that I had in that role was explaining to them that what was already in GitHub was mostly garbage and it, we couldn't debug it. We couldn't even solve the problems. Like It was such a mess because there had there was literally zero incentive to maintain the code base at all. The only, it was just 
push this feature out, push it was too feature heavy. It was an mm-hmm. overgrown MVP <laughs> and it needed to be moved to another platform. And by the time we were even able to do a piece of that, uh, we we actually made a mistake. Um, we should have just threw that rebuild up onto a subdomain, but we tried to put it right up. This was an e-commerce. Um, we tried to put it right up on the same website and the sort of local storage cookie stuff was so messed up that it broke things for basically all of our customers. Oh man. And we couldn't even uh, replicate it locally. Like this is sort of your worst case scenario of if you hire a bunch of overseas <laughs> contractors and then you don't accept that you're going to have to rebuild it later, mm-hmm. that these are the kinds of problems you deal with. Within a couple of weeks of joining, I realized that there was enough information on the window object because they rolled their own server side rendering to log into the database. Oh, wow. Um, and I was like, ah, we are too big to be doing this. Right. <laughs> um, so, you know, and then you have all, then all of a sudden this, all this tech debt exists that no one else at the company even thought was going to be on the horizon. Right. And it was a huge surprise. So I think you can absolutely outsource successfully, but everyone needs to not be under the delusion that they're going to build you the beginning of your final code base. Right. Right. It's kind of just, Oh, go ahead, Mike. I was just gonna say, yeah, it's definitely, it's a, it's a step you can take, but it's like, um, I sort of think of it as like, you're, um, you know, you're out settling the West. And the first thing you want to do is you want to build a shack that you can like sleep in while you build your house. Like this, this is going to take care of 90% of my needs in the short term in terms of keeping me dry, a place to sleep, a place away from the animals. But in the end, this will eventually turn into the barn or the place I store the wood or or just turns into firewood itself. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And it's okay for it to be firewood, right? Right. Uh, I was at a a tech conference once and they were talking about legacy code. Like when you're at an early stage startup, all the code you wrote yesterday is legacy code today. <laughs> yeah. I was like, that that's right. the right attitude to have about this. Right. When you wake up in the morning, everything from yesterday is legacy. <laughs> right. But that's primarily, are, are you think, saying that's in like the seed stage? Like, but when you get to, to your, your series A, I mean, at this point you're, I would hope you're out, you're off of the, the offshore, you know, crutch and you're, you're hiring internally at this point. Yeah. That's where I was going to just kind of piggyback on what you were saying, Frankie, like on the product size, one of the biggest challenges you have in series A is like the pace of development just slows down because Mm -hmm. you're actually trying to do things right. And you're trying to clean things up. And so a lot of time, like that early team is, is used to features just flying out the door because you're just so scrappy. You're not really concerned about architecture. You're just trying to like, Prove to yourself that this is valuable. We can serve this customer, and it's the right thing. But then in in A, like it it takes uh it, it takes about a year, a year and a half to really get people acclimated to like this new pace that's more consistent, more predictable, and it's just a lot slower. You just ship a lot less features because you're building it for scale. Um, so that's one of the big challenges you have to really kind of fight through on the product side coming in as that Series A. And you might have to have a conversation with the other leadership at the org about how you can have good quality code or you can have speed. You cannot have both. I will yeah. die on this hill. Fight your mother, not me. Uh, <laughs> you have the sliding I mean, scale. I, yeah. You get to pick where you are. You can't I have think, both. I think there's three things. There's speed, quality, maintainability, whatever you want to call it, and predictability. The yeah. predictability, like you can, 
we can we can move really really quickly or we can be predictable but we can't do both like it's all yeah. three, like there's just there's so much time in the bucket how we're yeah. going to allot it and where we're going to allot it is like maintainability figuring things out predictability or shipping yeah yep and you might pull out the old mythical man month essay be like you can't <laughs> stick nine women in a room and ask them to make a baby in a month that's not how this works <laughs> Yeah, one of, one of the things that it's such a hard thing because everybody's used to moving so quickly. One of the things that I found really useful is at Series A, you're you're growing at a place where things start to break. And so it becomes a really good natural opportunity to just like point to those things and say, hey, remember that outage we had last week? That's because of XYZ. And that's why we want to prioritize this, you know, tech deck initiative and start to allocate some bandwidth. So instead of like having the philosophical argument, those things inevitably just happen. Those quality issues just happen because you're you're so used to moving quickly that you just point to those, and that that can be a more productive way to get leadership uh, to kind of connect the dots um, for them as on on the product side. Hiring the right software engineer doesn't come easy or at an affordable price. As an early stage founder growing quickly, you need strong technical talent without breaking the bank. That's why we created Scale, Hatch IT's flexible recruiting program tailored for startups hiring on a startup budget. Whether you're looking to bring on a new head of engineering or a product manager, Hatch has you covered with dedicated support from seasoned tech recruiters at a fixed monthly cost. Take back the time you've spent sourcing through your own LinkedIn connections and let Hatch handle the heavy lifting of recruiting for you. And while you're at it, give your CFO something to smile about when they're no longer paying for high-priced finder's fees. Visit us at hatchit.io to start hiring on your startup budget today. I'd say a, a big thing that, you know, plays into this in terms of, you know, how teams kind of transition and build out is obviously going to be like from a hiring budget too. You know, when you're in that seed stage, you're, you got tight pockets, you know, you can only do so much. Um, and so when you think about graduating to that series A, you know, you've, you now have a lot more more funds to play with. Um, I'm curious to know, you know, what kind of trends that you've seen in terms of how teams start forming once there's a little bit more in the budget. You know, obviously there's you know squads, pods, whatever you want to call them. I mean, how how have you seen those start to grow out, uh, Frankie, on the engineering side? Yeah, places do this very differently depending on who is in charge of making those decisions. Mm -hmm. um, and if it's me, it's always going to be based around like the areas of ownership in the code base. I don't want multiple teams to own the same code base. Where if I were ever in a room and we're having a conversation about, well, team A owns lines 50 through 100 and team B owns like these other lines, full stop. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and also the way that your features and your code bases grow and the way that your teams grow, they're very interconnected. So, you know, at my last company where I was head of engineering and I got to make these choices for myself, we were going to as we grew, you know, this was going to be the e-commerce side, this was going to be the warehousing side, right? And probably eventually Fleet would be its own team. They were going to be part of warehouse for the immediate, but we had to separate the types of things that mattered to people that were basically building an internal tool from the e-commerce, yep. e right? Even the way the product interacts with those are different. Um, and by combining, like even having those two priorities on different tracks is already a benefit. Those code bases are going to grow in a way that makes sense for the engineers that are on the team. So you have to think long term about the at least in for the next six months into the future, what you think is going to happen with the product. And then how do you divide up the team so that they can 
be fully invested in the piece that they own rather than giving them like little snippets. You definitely, a pattern that I've seen that isn't great is when teams pick up something temporarily and then put it down when it's done. Um, There's no incentive to make sure that it's easy to maintain later because you might not be the one doing it. Um, Also, you're probably operating on that. Well, let's just get it out the door fast. Um, And when you're seed stage and you're just trying to figure out market fit, you can, you know, your Jira board might be a bunch of post-it notes on the wall and that's fine. But the minute you start needing to be predictable to your customers, that doesn't fly anymore. So um, I think you, you have to create your teams in the context of the product vision and also what the technical stuff needs to be to support that product vision and then divide it so that people can own as much of their own stuff as possible. That's the thing that's worked the best that I've seen. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's spot on, Frankie. The, the other thing that really helps when you move to that model, in addition to the ownership, like, you know, product benefits from that ownership too, right? You kind of break apart the key parts or based on product line or persona or key components, whatever. Um, it also really helps the leadership team start to think about how we want to invest and where we want to allocate resources. Because if you got a warehousing team and a e-com team, you can start to say, okay, we're going to invest, you know, five or 10 more heads over the next you know period of time where do we want to how do we want to allocate that and and that helps your road mapping process um because because they can start to, to think about it with some 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 investment buckets to to think about uh it makes those those conversations whereas if you have one kind of consolidated team it's way too hard to figure out how much is going to one part of the product versus the other and uh, it, it can be really challenging. So I think you're spot on with that. And it, it helps not, not only the engineers, but also the, the product too. Huge, huge help. And I think there's yeah, um, a product has. Well, I was just going to say, like, I think the um, it sort of goes without saying, but I, th- I think it was implied, Frankie, and tell me if I'm wrong, but like the idea of cross functional, right? Like in the mm-hmm. old school days, back when I was an engineer, there was a front end team and a back end team, and the front end worried about the front end and gave specs to the back end. The back end built an API and blah, blah, blah. And it took however long it took. Now it's cross-functional. You, you you want to align things to personas, to intent, to code base, and so on and so forth. And so they're much more vertical than they are horizontal teams. Yeah, absolutely. I think that the front-end versus back-end team might still work in a handful of places. But for the most part, you're still not incentivizing the engineers to behave the way you want them to behave, right. which is to care about the whole feature. And instead of it being parts of the code, parts of like the stack, that we divide up thinking about it in terms of the business units or the business separations of concern, which is also helpful to product management, right? If one product yeah. manager can own e-commerce and one and a different product manager can own yeah. the warehousing, that's better than one person trying to juggle those two co- very different concerns with yeah. very different needs against each other. Or when yeah. right, or when you have two product managers that like right have those two different things, and you have a pool of engineers and they're fighting for resources, and it's like, well. Only exactly. Bob knows how to do such and such, and only Jane knows how to do blah. And it's like then you're playing all these other like that's how you know that things are really bad when you're trying to figure yeah. out who can who should work on what and like yeah. right, right. Whereas if the whole team is moving in the same direction and they're all <laughs> invested in getting that feature or that product out, they can really work together in a way that's much better than if you were just sort of pulling yeah. people one off because you're like, well, you have this special skill set. If you're in a siege stage startup and there's only one person that could do one thing on the engineering team, you might already have a problem. <laughs> yeah. 
I think it's key for retention too, um, especially in this market. If you can give somebody you know ownership of something and they can they can really own it and have some autonomy for on the product side that you know the the priorities and the strategy, but on the tech side, you know the architecture and how we want to see this thing moving forward. I think that's really really important, um, and uh, yeah, it, it makes a big difference. Yeah, and I think just sort of wrapping that up uh, in my you know. Um, the idea of org structure versus team structure. And I think I've had this conversation mm-hmm. with any number of people where it's like, we can have a team structure that's this way where there's a product person and a lead engineer and so on and so forth. But that doesn't necessarily have to be how we're organized from a reporting structure. Um, and I think that that's something yeah. that some people, especially founders uh, who may sometimes struggle with. Yeah. The, the only, the only other thing that I think you got to be aware of coming into series a is, is, you got to be kind of patient. Like you have the vision of where you want to get to, but not all these pieces come together, right? You might not have enough, you know, front end developers to really have one per team, for example, right? And you might need to let things kind of balance out and you might not have product managers that can fully focus. And so it just, there is this piece where if you kind of come from a big company and you're used to these like nicely carved out teams, it's going to take a little bit of time to get there. And you have the vision of where you're getting to and you're laying the the pieces in, in place. But it, there's definitely some patience that it's going to be a little bit non-ideal, um, but you're you're moving towards where where you need to get to. So what do you um, what do you all prefer? Do you prefer that seed environment or the or that A environment? I prefer the seed environment when we can raise Series A. Effectively, when you're not just rotting <laughs> fruit on the. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think I like the Series A. I think that's the more interesting piece for for product managers. Um, you're putting the structure, the process, starting to think through the strategy, um, and so I think that's probably the more the place where you come in and you feel like you can really make an impact um, more so than the the seed stage. If you're a product person, the seed stage, you're probably the founder is is the reality. Um, cool. Yeah, I don't. I totally don't mind also playing a little bit of product management earlier yeah. on, um, but. Uh, the hard the hard part about all these things is anytime you join a seed stage startup, you're making a bet. You're making a bet that there will be product market fit than you can find because most startups fail, right? Yeah. And you have to treat it like that, right? You can't treat it like this is my this is gonna be my life's work. This is where right. I'm gonna get rich. Like get, getting rich on an IPO is a side effect of making really good choices about how you allocate your career time. Yeah. It's not a destination. <laughs> you know, so you you have to you have to know what kind of ride you're willing to get on and then know what your boundaries are and what you're trying to learn from it and then make good choices for yourself, right? The job market's crazy right now. You have a lot of choices. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and if, if you've never, for anybody listening, if you haven't worked with a seed stage startup, you should absolutely give it a try. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you, you never know. You might love the chaos. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I always I advise folks. Uh, so I was going to say, I, was, I always advise folks like, you know, if you're interviewing seed or series, series A, yeah, do a little extra homework on the leadership and kind of see like their backgrounds, like see where they came from. And then, you know, ideally you get a chance to speak with the C-suite, at least somebody, you know, high up before making a decision so that you can buy it. You, you want that buy-in and it's tough to follow, you know, uh, a vision if you can't you know, get behind the, the leadership. Yeah. yeah. And pro tip, if it's an early stage tech company, you really want co-founders <laughs> and you really want one of them to be technical. Right. You end up with a whole yeah. host of very specific problems if you have either a single founder or if you have a pair of co-founders who don't know how engineering works. Um, 
This is why all the big VC firms look for a technical co-founder, because I think statistically speaking, you're better off that way. Well, that sounds like an awesome episode. (laughs) 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 Horror stories. Um, All right. Well, any any other closing remarks that you all want to throw in there before we transition to the next segment? I think we covered a good amount. Yeah. All right. All right. So, yeah, this next segment here we're going to jump into. It's called Round Out My Career. So this is a fun segment where we spin the community wheel uh, with topics and questions that are all centered around career growth. Uh, And these are kind of crowdsourced from the Hatchpad community. So I'm going to spin the wheel here and see what today's topic is. And don't forget, one lucky Hatchpad community member can win a free uh, Raspberry Pi if we land on the prize. All right. Goals. Awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Get hyped. All right. Here we go. See here. Um, All right. So this one's more centered around just like setting goals. Um, So I'd love to hear just any tips that you all have when it comes around you know, setting, setting some of those goals for maybe yourself, but also maybe members that are on your team. Um, Josh, why don't you, you start? Yeah. I mean, what I think is in terms of like career goals, is that what you're talking about? Like career goals? Yeah. I'd say like yeah, specific towards like career goals. Yeah. Yeah. I think that the biggest thing I've found is I've found that um, when I'm setting my, my goals uh, early in my career, I, got a lot of insight from people that were down the road for me. Um, cause I didn't really know what goals to set earlier in my career. And I guess to some extent you're, you're always learning. Right. Um, but I think a lot of those conversations with people that were, you know, 10, 15 years down the road had already been pretty effective in their careers to kind of circle back and say, Hey, what, what kind of goals should I set? You know, uh, I had a conversation with one, uh, startup CEO and, and one of his, his pieces was of advice was, you know, join a company early, uh, for the growth potential. Right. And that's what, part of what pushed me into setting a goal of, Hey, I want to, I want to join a, an early stage seed stage company. And that's been great for my career. Um, so I think, you know, early in your career, as you think about career goals, uh, be sure to inform that with, uh, folks that are, have been effective in their careers and, and, uh, use that insight to help shape your own. Yeah. Well said Frankie, any, uh, anything specific that uh, you'd recommend? Yeah. I always advise people, especially if you're looking at joining early stage startups, which is what this episode has been about. Um, is to really frame it as a bet. You know, you this is all the information that you have that says that this is this might be a good bet. And maybe here are some signals that you know in advance once this if this sort of thing starts to happen, that maybe this is the writing on the wall, right? And you make good choices for yourself. You should not feel obligated to stick it out somewhere if you are not getting what you need. A lot of companies will try to preach that you loyalty. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, the company is going to do what's best for them. And you should do what's best for you. So you should take big risks, but also you should be willing to walk away when either you don't think there is product market fit or you don't think that you're going to get the kind of growth or coaching that you wanted out of that job, right? So take the big risk, but just be willing, stay light on your feet, right? Be ready to pivot. You know, you set goals for yourself, but they don't have to be set in stone. And if you don't make them, but you had a really good reason to have done something else, you should still feel good about that. Good stuff. Mike, did you have anything on that? Yeah, I mean, I think a little bit off of what uh, what both of our guests were talking about, but um, with Frankie, I think um, one of the things, like from a goals perspective, making sure that you're communicating with with leader, with your manager, your supervisor, or whatever, about what you want, what you're, what, you know, it's a two-way thing, right? Like, 
if they don't know what you're looking for, then they're not going to really give you those opportunities. Um, similarly, if you're constantly, I think we made it, we might have even joked about this a little bit. If you're asking for like a promotion, like really find out like what it is that, what, what is it that my boss is expecting to see from me do that? Like from, from the other side of it, right. When I'm promoting people, I expect my expectations that you've already been doing the job for some period of time. Maybe it's three months, six months depends, but like, you've sort of proven that you're capable of doing the role and then the title and promotion comes as a consequence of you having done it. So like my advice is like, don't sit on your hands and like, Oh, they'll be sorry when I'm gone. Um, like that type of mentality isn't great either. So it's definitely this communication and most managers, but especially in engineering, I think in product as well, we really leadership really takes pride in, especially early stage startup of like helping people launch and develop their careers. I don't think any one of us thinks that this is the last job somebody who's reporting to me is ever going to have. And I take more pride in the people who've gone on to great things that who worked for me at some point. And so I think it is a good conversation you can have with your, with your leader, with leadership in general, with your boss supervisor, and not to be afraid to have that conversation of, you know, where is this going to go? And maybe, maybe this isn't the best time. I think we sort of even talked about a little bit in the episode, like, Oh, as the, as the company grows and goes through these different stages, what's needed and who's the best fit changes over time. And that should be a conversation you're able to have with your manager. Um, so definitely that. And I've also um, talked to any, you know, I've always had a mentor in my life, um, someone who's a couple, you know, maybe two or three stages down the road from me um, who's helped me. And uh, one of the mentors or two of the mentors that I found most helpful are ones who actually didn't have engineering at all. They were, they were, one was a product person, one was a marketing person. Um, but they were able to give me so much more insight and depth uh, because they had this sort of like outside perspective. So um, don't just, you know, look for mentors of like, oh, another engineer and I'm going to hitch my wagon to that person. Like think outside of that and, and look into other parts of the organization as well. The other thing I'd add, Tim, is I think over my career, my, my goal, I never would have known what my goals were going to be. Like they, they evolve, right? It's a <laughs> process of discovery, right? Um, that you kind of go through and you kind of have a sense for where you're going. Um, but that starts to get clear over time. And the only way to know is to, to Frankie's point, make some bets, you know? Right. And so the, the other thing is, I think I obsessed too much over my goals uh, earlier, uh, whereas I probably should have just, you know, thought about it, you know, set some goals and then reevaluate in a quarter or six months and adapt, right? Um, and, and try some things and, and not worry too much about it, right? Is it making me better? Is it giving me some new experiences? Great. Let's, let's go for it. Uh, and then let's just adjust. Um, so that's, that's the other thing that I think I've learned along the way. Yeah, it's a good point. It's like, um, like when some, somebody asks you like, so what's your, you know, what's the five year plan? You know, I'm like, man, I'm just trying to see tomorrow. And then I'm trying <laughs> to see the, yeah, I've got like a year, yeah. I got a year, so maybe a year goal here that I want to hit. But, um, when you start talking like three years, five years, I mean, there's so much that changes when you're in such a fluid environment and especially in the, you know, crazy ass world that we live in and you know you never know what what's going to impact how business is done and then your goal just got flipped on its head so it's like yeah you know, it's being flexible with that is important yeah my personal like goal my all of my personal career goals sound something like i would like to be able to say yes to the right thing when it pops up mm -hmm. um, i like that and if you can do that and make sure give you give your future self the ability to make decisions you don't have to make them all for yourself right now yeah yeah, that's good. We didn't know there was going to be a global pandemic two right. years ago now. <laughs> right. right. And then it hit us and that changed it a lot. Right. And 
hopefully five years from now, there's no more pandemic, but also we don't know if that's true. So set yeah. your future self up for success. That's a good point. Good stuff. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, unless there's anything else that you all want to talk on, we do have a few more minutes, but I mean, otherwise I think we, we covered quite a bit. I mean, like I mentioned, this is, this is a good topic that I think, you know, we, we just have uh, a mini series on. Uh, and I'd also love to see it from, you know, like series B to series C or, or even beyond mm-hmm. this, because there's, there's a, a lot to un- unpackage here. And, and, you know, I think what's really exciting is like, you know, C to A, you know, we, we, we work a lot in that space. And I think it's one of the most dynamic changes because, and it's one of the most high risk, right? So you're going to get a lot more crazy shit happening, some good stories, um, some good oh shit stories, but um, yeah, there's a whole other, you know, there's a whole other realm of stages that have very different problems and different perspectives. So I, I see us building on this one and, and bringing mm-hmm. folks in that can give, shed some light from a different angle. Yeah, I'm just curious on your guys' take. It, it's always seemed to me like there's the seed stage, then there's kind of A to C, and then there's C+. Plus. Um, yes. Like A and B feel very much a continuation of the same thing. Like in many ways, you're almost guaranteed to get a B unless something, at least in this market, unless something catastrophic happens. Um, it, it seems like those are like the three phases that I've identified. Do you guys see the same same thing or do you guys see something different? No, I would agree. Actually, as as uh, Tim was even talking, I was sort of thinking like, yeah, it's sort of like there's C to A and then A to C, C++. Mm-hmm. I don't know. There's this like, sometimes there's a yeah. D, you know, but there's this, sure. but then there's this point where, right, there's hyper growth or whatever you want to talk, but there's this, this you know, A and B. And I'm curious, you know, I think Frankie probably has some pretty good experience there as well uh, and seen it. Yeah, I mean, I think even Reddit is considering itself a startup, and they just announced like Series F or something. <laughs> it's like, come on. Mm-hmm. Um, I I sort of break it up into: uh, Do you have product market fit, which is your pre-Series A, and then like, okay, can I cuss on this show? Like, like, <laughs> oh, sure. like, okay, don't fuck that up. Right, right? Yeah. you have yeah. Series A. <laughs> Just don't fuck it up. And then yeah. you get to a point where you have so much money, right? At the place I'm at, the company that I'm at right now. Uh, we've probably raised our last round of funding and, you know, yeah. IPO is what we're looking at next. And that's a, that's a very different ballgame, mm-hmm. um, even from like your previous rounds of funding. But I think those are really the the three phases. It's like get product yeah. market fit. Don't screw it up. Go public or, or, you know, pull a, a slack and let Salesforce or whoever bought them. Right. Um, you know, either way, lots of people get a big payout, which is great. But those are, those are your phases. <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, well, from a recruiting perspective, you know, we look at a lot of things in terms of, you know, when is there certain departments created? Like, for example, like, you know, we we roll out a different packages that cater to, you know, C to B. And then when you're at C and beyond, it's, you know, you've got a full out recruiting team in place. We mm-hmm. we just kind of serve as a supplement, you know, versus like in those early stages, like we we are your standalone like department because you have nothing in place. And so those are very different, you know, requests that they're looking for. You know, we need a system stood up and, you know, we need market research and we need all these things beyond just we, we need candidates. We need a, a pipeline. We've got we've got mm-hmm. folks in, on the inside that can handle all the other stuff. Um so like from a services perspective, yeah, we, we break that up between like C to B and then mm. D and C plus. So. Mm. That's interesting. 
Good stuff. Well, um, I guess for you know for the listeners, like any anywhere on social that uh, guests can find you all. Yeah, I write frequently on LinkedIn, uh, okay. so folks are welcome to to follow me there. Um, Josh Tong One is my uh, handle there. I'm also on LinkedIn. I'm pretty active on Twitter, although I'm not always talking about tech. But you could find me at Frankie is Frank because I'm corny like that. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Perfect. Awesome. Well, um, super grateful for you all to come and spend some time with this. I know this is a great, a great topic and, you know, it's going to definitely pique the interest of a lot of our listeners. So appreciate y'all. Yeah. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me.